Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Optimistic Design, a speaker series where we take a practical, positive look at the future of design, ethical innovation, and technology. I'm your host, Wilma Lamb, Associate Director of Strategy here at Substantial, and today I'm excited to be talking with Surya Vanka. Surya is a design leader with over 25 years of experience working at the leading edge of physical and digital design. In 2014, he founded Authentic Design with the mission to help unlock creative potential through the power of the design process. He is also the creator of Design Swarms, an agile design approach that has been used to tackle complex global challenges. Previously, Surya was also director of user experience at Microsoft, a tenured professor of design, and an award-winning industrial designer. Surya also has also served as president of Design in Public and chaired multiple design conferences. Hi, Surya. Welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Hi, Wilma. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> We're very excited to have you. Me too. <laughs> So just to kick things off, I'd love to hear from you, you know, how did you get into the world of design? Yeah, so uh, that was a while ago. And the way that I got, so, you know, ever since I was young, uh, I was a tinkerer. I was drawing stuff, tinkering. Uh, and I was growing up in India where I was it was early in the time of design maturity of India. And uh, there was one design school and that one design school across all of India took 25 students. I didn't even know about it. I didn't know there was something called design. The school was awesome. It was started by Charles Eames uh, mm -hmm. in India, but it's kind of tucked away in a completely different part of India than I was in. And uh, so I knew there was this thing I wanted to do. I didn't know it had a name, this mm -hmm. thing called design. And so I went into the closest uh, other profession that I could think of, which was engineering. Mm -hmm. And uh, I happened to do that in the city called Chandigarh, uh, studying engineering. And my engineering school, uh, the classroom that I was in had a window. Of course, it had a window. And through that window, when I looked out, there was this building I could see. So every time I was in uh, engineering school, I'd look at this beautiful building that looked very different from everything else. It got me really curious. And I went and investigate what, investigated what that building was. And it was a building by Le Corbusier. Mm -hmm. And then I investigated that. What is this building that's colorful, looks different, it's got a different shape and all of that. And I learned there was a discipline called architecture. And then there was another discipline similar to that called design. And that took me down the rabbit hole. And it turned out I applied to this one design school in India called the National Institute of Design. I was very lucky to be one of those 25 people that one year to be admitted. And that began my story of getting into design. And uh, it was just this just amazing, eye-opening experience, life-changing experience for me to begin this adventure in design. So from that like early experience of, of getting into design school, I mean, all, all the way to today, are there any you know, mentors or experiences that really shaped and inspire how you work now? Yeah, I think some of those, for me, some of those seeds were really planted in my first few weeks and months in um, uh, when I started in the National Institute of Design, which is in a city called Ahmedabad. 
when I first joined the design school, like any 18-year-old, I was thinking about, I want to go and design really cool stuff. I want to design fast cars. I want to design fashion. I want to design these amazing things. And there were all these visual things that I'd seen from superstars and um, in magazines and so on. Uh, in the first few months, as we started studying um, the works of folks like Victor Papanek, I realized this thing called design, there's two aspects to it. One is it's a deeply political act. When you make something, it is a political act of providing empowerment, helping drive justice. So that is really interesting. And so that really shaped my thinking. The other part was this astonishing discovery that this is not, uh, design is not magic. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. So uh, there is this thing called the design process. And boy, isn't this so exciting that each time we did a different project, we'll get a different project and we kept using the same process. And then the results were really amazing. And so I got really hooked on these two things of design with purpose and design and the design process. And those, you know, later on, I went to graduate school uh, at the Ohio State University and there, uh, after I, um, you know, I got a, a, a superb design education, so I dived deeper into other fields like cognitive science and anthropology and computation methods. But the design process and the notion of the, uh, the purposeful design stuck through all of that. So for me, those were really foundational uh, learnings very early in my design career. Yeah, and I mentioned at the start of our conversation a little bit about authentic design, and it seems like that's really related to this perspective you have about design's relationship to justice and that need for purpose. Can you talk a little bit about what authentic design is and, and what you're working on now? Sure, absolutely. So um, authentic design is, you know, um, it's a consulting practice that I've been running for about five plus years. But before that, I had spent a long time in the corporate world, 16 years at Microsoft. Mm -hmm. I'd spent time in the world of research and academia at the University of Illinois. So I'd come to this world of uh, um, uh, sort of having this consulting practice um, after all of those experiences. And for me, what had really emerged was really the word that pops to the surface for me is really authenticity. Authenticity, I think, is that very, very, very important word in design. As a designer, you know, my quest is always to find the most simple, enduring, essential solutions. And those that are truly authentic to the problem, to the situation, to the user, to the customer, and so that was the, the, also the inspiration behind the name and behind the work. You know, and I think this notion of authenticity for me runs really deep because it is at the craft layer. I'm an industrial designer by training and an interaction designer also by training and by uh, practice. And in both cases, the craft layer, uh, 
authenticity is about, you know, finding those native forms that truly respond to the problem and are, uh, take the form as solutions. And that search was the same when I was working with plastic and stainless steel and injection molding and forming of physical materials to find that perfect form. And it's the same working with pixels and algorithms and data. So this notion of really discovery, of uncovering form, you know, be it at the level of the final artifact that one creates, or even the situation. What is the problem we are trying to solve? How are we trying to empower people? What is the authentic way to empower a community? What is the authentic way to empower somebody of a particular user group? Maybe they're um, growing older. Maybe they've got some um, uh, ability, disability. Maybe they've got a part of a certain group or so on, right? What is the authentic way to do that? And so that, that was really the quest when I started Authentic Design was, what are the really hard problems in the world today and what are the authentic solutions we can find for these problems? Mm-hmm. And that's what yeah. started me on the journey. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And as you talk about Authentic Design, I mean, you also talked about how important it is to you as part of the design process that you really empower people. And I think this is really related to why you created Design Swarms. So could you talk a little bit about, you know, what is swarm behavior and how did that lead you to creating the Design Swarm concept? Absolutely. Yes. So um, at Authentic Design, it's been a process of running, learning and running a whole bunch of experiments. And through that learning and uh, running experiments, one of, so first of all, there was an observation that I've had after running many corporate design teams, many teams as a consultant, many various teams, and just reflecting on which teams tended to have the most impactful results. And what I noticed a pattern. And for me, the teams that were able to solve things quickly and elegantly didn't function like top-down command and control systems. Mm -hmm. Rather, they were nimble, they were agile, they were cooperative, they um, worked together, raised each other. They were more like nimble ant farms, like shoals Mm -hmm. of fish that were very adaptive and responsive as Um, particularly in difficult problems that they will quickly adapt and learn and gracefully find their way around obstacles and work together to solve solutions. Mm -hmm. Now, through, you know, I've I've had the opportunity, been really fortunate to have taught design thinking one way or the other to about 25,000 people, you know, in Mm -hmm. all the various organizations that I've been part of. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And sometimes, and that's a very, very powerful frame. I found that when one can take design thinking and creative swarms together, these two come together to form these, this really very, very powerful framework where we've got a scaffold for unleashing creativity, the design thinking process, and the swarm behaviors, a way that we can have collective innovation. 
And those two came together to become design swarms. Design swarms, you know, at the core of it, there are a few, uh, a few ideas, right? The one, one idea, of course, is a clear, simple, well-orchestrated, visible process that everybody is aligned so that people can amplify each other's uh, superpowers rather than cancel each other out. Mm -hmm. So that's one cornerstone. The other notion is a notion of concurrency. When different folks are working in teams on a challenge and working concurrently, and the process is set up so that they can be cooperative, then we can increase velocity dramatically. And that becomes really, really important in our times because if you think about it, what has changed in our time? Problems have become far more complex. And because far, problems have become far more complex, because most problems we deal with now are ecosystem problems. So they're very complicated. They are a lot of connected pieces. And because of that, we have to go much deeper to solve any problem. So that's one aspect of the problems that we solve today, be it in business, be it in social impact, be it startups, be it in education, healthcare, whatever, right? Problems are much deeper. Mm -hmm. There's another need that has appeared, which is the need to go faster and faster and faster, which mm -hmm. pulls in the opposite direction which is how do you go faster and faster and faster? And you, we have to go faster because of market forces that need us to move faster, but also because the world is changing faster and we have to respond to it faster. So these two things, the need to go deeper and the need to go faster pull in different directions. The power of design swarms is that one give, it gives us a way to address those by bringing collective design. When multiple people are working on a problem, you can gain understanding of the problem far more quickly if you have a well-orchestrated process. It can cause confusion otherwise. And when you have a well-orchestrated, uh, clear process, it also helps you solve faster. So that's mm. the cornerstone of the process. You know, where it came from, was actually the need to serve those problems and those communities which had extremely low design resources, okay. right? Mm -hmm. And so there was an, those constraints led to this notion of let's find a way to do this where there's very few design thinkers, but they're very hard problems of collective design and using design swarms. But it's been very handy that it's now matured enough that it's used also in design-rich places like enterprise design. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for any of our listeners or watchers out there that are interested in design swarms, could you explain like what it's like to take part in one? Absolutely. Uh, so design swarms, uh, you know, from the sort of uh, uh, more abstract notion that I described, mm -hmm. they're instrumented with process maps. So there are... Uh, there's a Lego kit of process maps which come together to create uh, what I think of as problem-solving surfaces, depending on the problem. So if one can profile what kind of a problem a problem is, is it a fuzzy front-end problem? Is it a problem that requires a lot of iteration at the end? Is it just a wicked problem that has 
you know, it's got all kinds of moving parts and you need to understand a lot of different things. You can profile problems, right? Based on profiling problems, one can put together a problem-solving surface. Now, the problem-solving surface is these process maps. The mm -hmm. power of process maps is that humans can work together on a visible representation of the design process and work their way through that. Right. It used to have done a lot of these on paper. Right. Uh, there's, you know, situations where that's the only way it worked. You know, I've worked with uh, refugee communities and like folks after an earthquake where you just go there with these process maps, either, you know, maybe like uh, three feet high and two feet wide and a series of them and you put them up on a wall and then people work through it and they come to a solution. Now, these same process maps are uh, 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 things that are done on digital whiteboards, right? Mm -hmm. So at the core of it are process maps. Then there are sets of resources that, you know, you can't just have a process map and say, go do stuff on a process map because mm -hmm. people don't have the training. So there are learning resources that go along with and facilitation to lead people through that entire process. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the core notion, again, is there's not one team going through one process map. There are multiple teams in parallel using the same process maps, solving the same problem, but using these tools of the representation of the, pro of the process, as well as learning resources to be able to march through each step of the uh, problem solving process, the design thinking process, really. Yeah, no, that's really helpful just to understand what a design swarm is typically like. Um, but now I imagine there's been changes to how you work with teams and how you work in a design swarm given the pandemic the last year and a half. Could you speak to, you know, what's changed with digital collaboration and how do you think this is going to impact the future of design swarms? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent, excellent question because when we could no longer travel and when we could no longer... Uh, spend time together in the same room thinking yeah. you know the way I've run this process for hundreds of times was dependent on really as a facilitator to really move and shape the energies in the room to inspire to push to lead people and you know do all the kind of social dynamics that a creative space needs, right? Really, in a sense, recreate the design studio, right? And which required you know people coming together in groups, um, gazing at what the work they have done, negotiating that, having conversations, having good conflict, and all of that. I was thinking, how now if people are going to be separate? and looking at their own screens. Yes, we've got digital whiteboards. This is going to be like a poor second cousin of the process, right? Mm -hmm. So I was a little bit, I was worried, how is this gonna scale? I said, okay, we'll do it for a bit and then we go back to doing it where we set up rooms intentionally with the right sight lines and you know the organization of the room, we set up these supplies and we set up an inspirational space, empathy walls, all those kinds of things that I I have been pleasantly surprised. Mm -hmm. I have been really pleasantly surprised because um, moving design swarms to a digital 
um, online swarm space has really transformed the process in many ways. So here are a few things. Mm -hmm. So when you think about design studio, we think about a workshop and so on, and you think of facilitator. I can typically stand next just to one person or two people or a few people, and I can make eye contact and I can see how they are actually responding to what's happening and do what is needed as a facilitator to move things forward. I can't see, look into the eyes of the person who is 30 feet away at the end of the corner of the room. Now, when we have digital whiteboards and conferencing uh, systems, I get a chance to be as close to anyone in the room. This, is a, this little thing is a game changer because mm -hmm. now it creates equal voices, mm -hmm. right? The other thing that happens that I find is really fascinating is, you know, these processes of design very much lean upon, you know, these boards because what we are doing is design is holistic and therefore we never want to lose sight of the whole. And the way we do that is use walls and on walls, we put sticky notes and diagrams and pictures and notes and all of that. And so we never lose the whole view of the problem. That's fundamental to design, right? Mm -hmm. And, but when we work together, it could be that the large man standing in front of the board hides that visibility from maybe the smaller woman standing behind him, mm -hmm. right? The nice thing with digital whiteboards is our bodies are invisible. So we all continuously see what each other does. Mm -hmm. And because we see what each other does, we get a very dynamic view of what's happening in not only what's happening on these boards, but what's happening in people's minds mm. because it is evolving. We have other um, kind of opportunities which are really, really interesting. I try to bring customers into workshops. Sometimes in co-creation, it's the customers themselves or users themselves. But if it is not, I'd bring customers in. Mm -hmm. And they come in for a little bit during some part of the process, and then they step out and we go back to designing. It's always a bit of a challenge, but now customer drop-ins become very uh, easy. So if you get stuck at some point, you just phone a customer into mm -hmm. your meeting. So yeah. this for me is non-trivial because how did we do, how do we do this typically? We go, go and do research to understand people who are not us. Mm -hmm. Then we create abstractions of them called personas or other kind of evidence uh, mechanisms. And then we design against those. Mm -hmm. And then we move along our process and then we go check back in with the real humans who we use data from to create those abstractions when we can have the real humans themselves come in and be part of the process, you know, in co-creative ways, it's powerful. The mm -hmm. challenge is there's a lot of logistic, uh, logistics and uh, that adds its own weight. But with these kind of processes and the way that uh, interconnected digital um, um, uh, infrastructure lets us have these drop-ins, it makes it really interesting. The other aspect is from being a purely synchronous process, now we have the opportunity of being asynchronous. Mm -hmm. 
And that opens up all kinds of opportunities, right? <laughs> because people think at different speeds. Some people think uh, faster. Some people are more deliberate and slower. It allows everyone to now participate at their own pace. <laughs> and maybe the uh, you know from just uh, cre running these sessions as a facilitator, designer, and a workshop designer, um, uh, the nice thing is, till five minutes before you start something, you can respond to new information coming, right? Mm -hmm. Usually, you had to wrap that up a couple of days before because you had a production, mm -hmm. you had production to take care of. So you can go really late in the cycle, and not only till the start, but you can adapt the tool and the infrastructure and the uh, problem-solving surface continuously. You know, mm -hmm. for me, uh, you know, and. And the final thing I think, which is really the biggest piece of this. Mm -hmm. Now that we are, now that I'm doing these forms online, we have a new actor that comes in and that's data. Mm -hmm. Everything that people do is data. Now you can bring in the virtuous loop of data to start mm -hmm. informing the process. And the beauty is not just the process you're in right now, you can use that data to inform the process of all future designs forms as well. So that's very, very powerful. You know, and to summarize, you know, there's a lot I've said that to summarize, I think the power that I've discovered is really now the this gives me the ability to bring even more people who are not part of the innovation process. Mm -hmm. now into the innovation process. So I'm really excited. Next week, I'll be running uh, um, Swarm in Sierra Leone and oh, okay. be running that with uh, young folks on, on gender violence. And some of them won't use computers. They'll run, do it from their phones maybe, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, but now we have the means to be able to reach folks and let, rather than design down for others, Mm -hmm. Let everybody's creative potential help shape the solutions for themselves and even mm -hmm. for others. So that gets mm -hmm. super powerful. Mm. Yeah. Now that's really helpful just to articulate, you know, how, how it's changed over the last 18 months. It sounds like it's changed a lot. Yeah, it's changed a lot. And I think it's <laughs> going to continue to change a lot. <laughs> yeah. No, it's definitely been an interesting year to be in design and be working in this field. Um, the other thing I want to make sure that we touch upon that, that you've spoken about before is the kind of evolution of design industry and also design maturity within organizations. And you've talked about this idea of design 1.0 to design 4.0. Can you talk more about that framework and how you understand design maturity? Yeah. So this framing, uh, which is really a framing of the four scales of design, uh, this is not my original framing. This goes back to, I'm thinking, maybe even as long ago as 1972, Richard Buchanan, who wrote about the four orders of design. And I am stealing from that and also the, the work of uh, uh, folks who built on uh, uh, Buchanan's work, like Gary Van Patter, who actually is the one who introduced the notion of uh, using the numbers. And I'm building on top of that. So just, you know, giving credit where credit is due. But the important piece over here is, so if we think about these four orders of design or the four scales of design that design functions at. So you can think of design 1.0 is a design of products, 
and communications, mm-hmm. right? These things that we all learn in design school, that how do you design this great, well-designed product, you know, um, the, the perfect message, well-designed, you know, with the right colors, the fonts and all that, what we all deeply, deeply love. The next level order of design or the next uh, design 2.0 is design for experiences and services, mm-hmm. right? Now, when we're taking the narrative frame and we're looking at how do things unfold over time, right? And multi-touch experiences, omni-channel, all of those things, right? This, you know, this is really um, sort of where we think about if we want to think of field service design, right? So we can think about that as the evolution of uh, design to design 2.0. And design 3.0, which is really where we are right now, is designed for organizational transformation. Right? Mm-hmm. All of the business success stories we've seen in the last 20 years have been designed 3.0 success stories, whether it's Apple, right? Airbnb, it's Microsoft, it's the Australian tax system. Mm-hmm. Right? And all of these success stories that have happened uh, around the world around design, it's about multiple people, teams using design thinking and driving organizational transformation and value through that. Design 4.0 is design at social and planetary scale, mm-hmm. right? And I, that is the part of the evolution that is taking place right now. Mm-hmm. And we are moving towards that. We haven't had too much of a, either vocabulary or a commitment or a focus towards that, but that's been moving. And you know, the pandemic has been an accelerant, which these kind of uh, um, sort of uh, intentions, needs are becoming clearer, right? We see it, uh, the rise of inclusive design, mm-hmm. right? The fact that we're all talking about inclusion, the fact mm-hmm. that we have starting to build these um, inclusive design frameworks. You know, a bulk of Authentics work now is really in helping organizations to operationalize inclusive design uh, because organizations are recognizing the need to do that. That, you know, for me, this goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, all the way back to my first few weeks in design school and picking up uh, Papanek's uh, design for the real world and uh, the notion of design as a political act, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what design 4.0 is scale, mm-hmm. designing for scale and designing yeah. for this particular moment when our home, the planet is in trouble, right? Yeah. And we've got uh, like a bunch of different things happening at the same time a bunch of challenges that need to be taken care of. We can't pretend that the most important thing to do in design is make better icons, Mm -hmm. right? Or uh, create better shopping experiences uh, and limit ourselves. Those are very important, but we can't limit ourselves to those or build more profitable companies. We have, we, uh, while we do all of those, we recognize there's an opportunity for design to have a much larger impact and that design has something unique that it brings that can contribute to that. Mm-hmm. That, you know, uh, uh, that uh, uh, there's a way of thinking that other fields don't have. 
and that by adding it to the mix, uh, design has an opportunity and a responsibility to contribute at this moment. And that's design 4.0. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really want to dig into, you know, the, all the concepts that you just mentioned around design 4.0. We talked a little bit earlier about, you know, making it in- inclusive of more people, also de- <clears throat> democratizing the design process. And as you just mentioned, there are a lot of organizations, you know, right now that they know how to do design 1.0 and and 2.0 and and quite a few that have moved in this 3.0 space. But as a designer, or if you're part of a design and design and strategy team, what does it actually mean to set up, you know, for success moving into design 4.0? Yeah. So for the first, you know, Mm -hmm. um, design 4.0 doesn't replace 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. You continue to do those. That is work that we needs doing. It is simply about expanding the work that we do mm-hmm. so that we are able to take care of the entire stack, right? Mm-hmm. The, you don't limit yourself just to being able to doing one point of work or two point of work or three point of work, that you have the ability of being a full stack organization, a full stack designer that is able to be a, a function at all of those levels. And even if you're doing 4.0 work, mm-hmm. you know, and taking on big problems, they're a part of it. You're going to have to create products and communications and you want those to be well-designed and you're going to have to create journeys and experiences and services. Those need to be well-designed and you need to be able to transform organizations and bring design to the center of your organization. That still exists. So it doesn't replace that. It is just expanding the scope and the leadership right Mm -hmm. and the important uh, and why it becomes important uh, for the organizations that are going to be successful in the 21st century is because the nature of the kinds of problems we solve are interconnected problems Mm. right so it is the organizations that are able to bring multiple disciplines are able to have the ability to have the right kind of research, to be able to bring the thinking that uh, um, uh, has a sophistication and the modeling to be able to look at all of that, that will be able to take on this next level of capability, this next level of scale of design 4.0 work, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, if I look at the work that uh, Authentic is engaged in, you know, on Monday, we are doing maybe very much 1.0 work, which is someone for us. So it's about visual design of digital uh, dashboards for something, right? Where it's really about making some choices to make some information architecture better and just visualization better. But it is hooked into something that is larger, that is helping moving the needle somewhere else, mm-hmm. right? And so, so, so that's uh, so you can almost think of these are nested, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's 4.0 doesn't replace. And so, to the question really, so how do you grow? How do you grow it towards it, you know, as an individual, as an organization? Well, the good news is at this particular moment in time, the level of conversation that is taking place in design communities is growing in sophistication more and more and more. 
you know, again, I'll come back to inclusive design. You know, that conversation, some of the richest conversations or inclusion are happening in the world of design right now, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the richest conversations about data and the ethics around data are happening in the design discipline right now, mm -hmm. right? So there's a lot of these conversations that are happening. So the way to grow is to get engaged into these conversations and also to truly, truly in, um, um, take on a learning mindset. I am learning more these days about design than I was learning when I was a student, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I know that the need to really up my own learning, up my own game, right? There's so much there, you know, I'm right now deep into, um, you know, working and learning and creating frameworks and partnering folks on conversation design, right? Mm -hmm. And why? Because I think as we move into a world that's got, uh, um, you know, that becomes more and more about ambient uh, uh, computing, that's going to be important. But now, when we, what becomes important for me as uh, somebody who plays a leadership role in, um, in some of these uh, disciplines is where is that intersection now between conversation design and inclusive design? I don't know. And I'm not going to be able to figure, out, figure it out myself. And the only way I can do it is by leaning into community and mm -hmm. all the smart minds. So at this moment, you know, we all, uh, you know, growth mindset's kind of a hot word, you know, a lot of people talk about, it. but truly in design, if you really want to grow, it, you have to have a growth mindset. This stuff is changing mm -hmm. so quickly. Yeah. So speaking of community and, and growth, one of the things that I think is incredibly interesting about you and your work is it's truly a global practice and you get this kind of insight and ability to see into design communities around the globe. So I'd love to hear from you. Are there like key learnings that you've gained from the kind of breadth of the global design community? Yeah. You know, uh, one of the learnings for me has been this. So mm -hmm. there was when I, uh, I'll just, uh, I'm loving our conversation because I'm getting to reflect on this uh, time <laughs> from, um, when I was a uh, design student and, you know, thank you for starting our conversation with that because it's such an important framing. So I remember when I was uh, a young designer in India, uh, learning about this amazing field, um, I was this fan of German design, a fan of Italian design and a fan of Japanese design. And for me, there was a sense that there was, how, there is so much maturity in design in these, uh, in these uh, uh, communities, which felt very, very far away from my own experience when I was, you know, a uh, working environment, but then did not have much design maturity, right? It was just learning uh, the early steps. What, and so that has been part of how our design communities have been uh, structured. There's some places that are more advanced and some places that are less advanced. And then we kind of know, yeah, there's this Japanese design, German design, there's this interesting time in the 80s, there's American design of a certain kind and so on. I think the world is structured a little bit different as I see it now. And as when I connect 
uh, with communities across the world. I think our design tribes are no longer uh, defined regionally, geographically, or by nation. Mm-hmm. Because what's happened? Yeah. We're all using the same tools. We're all using the Adobe sets of tools, and we're all using the Figma sets of tools, and the InVision sets of tools. We're using the same tools. We're using the same platforms to share our work. We're using the same processes. And we are all looking at the same sources of inspiration across the mm-hmm. whole world. Wherever I go, we are, you know, those that tool set, that platform's the same. So what is emerging that is really interesting is the new design tribes, the design mm-hmm. tribe of industrial designers, the design tribe of interaction designers, the tribe of service designers, the tribe newly uh, formed tribe of transition designers, the conversation designers, right? Mm-hmm. And that... Uh, we have these different communities of design practice. And that's what, you know, and for me, it's been really interesting because I'm so interested in the design process that I'm, for one reason or other, uh, because my career has been transdisciplinary uh, and also within design, I've kind of connected with all of these different uh, tribes, many of the different uh, tribes. And so what's really interesting is to see the insights emerging in each of these different areas uh, mm-hmm. in a different way. So we've, in some way, we've gone from verticals to horizontals or something like that, right? And that's, <laughs> yeah. been, that's been super, super interesting uh, yeah. to see, see that change. You know, and having said that, another thing that's really uh, emerging is some uh, now that I've said that there are these tribes, there are also some very, very interesting pockets of where folks are mining into local needs and inspirations to create new ways to approach design. You know, I see, I see some, I see a lot of that happening right now. There's a lot of energy of that happening in India, which I'm very familiar with. Amazing design community forming there. I see that happening somewhere with the hardware hacking community in uh, southern China around Shenzhen and so on, right? And there's different communities that are forming. So the way I like to think about what's happening in the world of design, we have got these tribes and we've got these new laboratories where the new is being created. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this is really interesting. And, and I love this idea that you brought up of moving from kind of verticals to horizontals. Uh, brings to mind a couple of things I wanna ask. So. So one is, you know, you've worked at the intersection of kind of design, technology, and innovation for the last 25 years, and you've seen a lot of this evolve. And the other thing, I'm just reflecting back on your earlier answer about design education is, you know, one thing I want to ask you is, as you reflect on how the industry's changed, it's become more globalized, there's more of these pockets, we're increasingly horizontal. Mm-hmm. Do you think that design education itself needs to change, or do you think it has been changing along with the industry? I, I think design education is changing. Um, is it changing fast enough? That's another uh, question. Is it changing necessarily in the right direction? So obviously, design uh, we see it all over. This, there is, uh, you know, design is hot. Nobody is going to deny that, right? Uh, design is just really hot all, all over the planet right now. And so we have one phenomenon that we see happening in design education is just a lot more places offering that. Uh, uh, 
just going back to India and the fact that there was one school that had 25 students. Now I think the number is 5,000 industrial designers being graduated a year, right? And, uh, you know, in some of these, uh, China's got a bigger number than that. So there's a lot of different schools, right? So there is that level of sort of a base level of design, basic level of design education being provided. There are some places that are starting to take um, uh, design education and really move it in areas that are sort of preparing those four point design 4.0 uh, designers mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. there are efforts to really tie social impact right back into mm -hmm. the design programs. The other programs that have become very deep in terms of technology Mm -hmm. Right. So what we're also seeing in design education, there are different kinds of uh, uh, emphasis. The place that I'm not sure and I haven't seen enough of yet is design education truly training folks for what is right now a key skill for designers. So what happened in design? Right. We spent... 20 years fighting for a seat at the table. And then we got it. And we got a seat at the table. But then we found many times, not only did we have a seat at the table, we had the head of the table. Right. Yeah. And they said, oops, what do I do with this now? Because now it was not just being another voice. And they went, is often taking on a leadership role, lead. This is an experienced economy. And if designers understand how to do experience innovation, if you think about it, sort of the three phases how, of how innovation may evolve in many organizations, typically start with product innovation, technology innovation, technology innovation, then move into product innovation and then into experience innovation. Almost everybody's engaged in the experience innovation phase, right? Which builds on the technology innovation and the business innovation. It's that last bit. And who's got the experiences in that area? It's folks who have studied how to do that and understand how it is to innovate and experience those stage, that stage three innovation. And so designers are often being asked, all right, here's a seat at the table, lead. And that's where the skills of leadership, which are now not just how do you do lead within your silo of design, but how do you lead multidisciplinary teams? How do you understand business, right? How do you do all those things that good leaders have to do? right? Mm -hmm. That is what people are trying to learn on the fly. And so that's yeah. the place that design education has got a role, has an opportunity and a role to play, is recognizing that design has shifted. The role of design in the world has shifted, right? Mm -hmm. it, you, and sometimes design schools may, very often design schools are preparing uh, designers to work in the old model, where you were sort of this brilliant, talented person who sat on the edge and mm -hmm. made incredibly clever, beautiful um, things and proposed them to somebody else who made the hard decisions 
on whether these would actually be the things that your organization would invest into, put into the market and so on. That has shifted. Now it's much more different kind of partnerships, oftentimes with the leading voice. And so that's the opportunity for design education to really up its game. Um, you know, and there are a couple of places that are, uh, have been talking about that for a little while where, you know, looking at design and business, but I think that's an opportunity. Yeah. So reflecting on kind of the, you know, we've covered a lot of topics today. I'd love to hear from you. What is top of mind today as you think about the future of design and technology? Like, what are you optimistic about for the future? So I think, um, you know, clearly this also uh, design and technology uh, and design, particularly digital technology when we talk about, right? When we say tech, we mean digital tech most of the time. so, you know, we've gone through, um, uh, John Mader has been a proponent, a proponent of this in his uh, design and tech report of how we've gone through the age of sort of design, the age of design superstars, right? And design as this uh, uh, cool thing, black box designers just create this magic. And we've entered through the age of uh, design thinking where we designed bit turned into heuristic and it was done by teams and it was tied to this sort of large organizational change. And we moved into this age of computation design, mm-hmm. right? Where now uh, digital technologies are very much baked into the process, whether it is working with thing, working with things that are digital using digital platforms to create them, working with like your AI body to uh, create design, right? Uh, And, you know, fundamentally also, and perhaps most importantly, uh, that now the conversation between designer and the beneficiary of design, the user, the customer, bridging that because of the way that communication now has become a part of the design process. So they're all of those, right? And all of those, and, you know, those are very powerful ways that design has changed that we don't get to, we don't get to go back to any, that is fun. That is the way that design is done. So, but when I think about design and technology, there are a couple of things that really are top of mind for me, right? Uh, One is this notion that none of this, uh, when we talk about the scale of design that we do today, the enormous scale that we do it at, given that digital design tends to have very large scale, the first product I designed was used by maybe at the most 100,000 people, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, since then, the kind of products more recently I've been involved in, used by two or three billion people, right? So that scales. Yeah. And of course, with that scale, just because of that scale, the diversity of people that I touch and I impact either positively or negatively also tends to increase, has increased, right? And so it, our choices have stopped being neutral. No. Mm. Yeah. Any small choice can have magnified impacts, mm-hmm. right? And so now how do we make sure that whole working in the area of tech that we put extraordinary emphasis mm-hmm. on making sure of the impact of that tech? So that's one level. Uh, 
The other part is when we've got these, when we've got these technologies, you know, this is, we are living sort of in this renaissance of this technologies, right? There's a new technology every week or every two weeks, right? I mean, take for example, uh, blockchain, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I'm, I'm quite excited by the potential of blockchain and design. At the moment, blockchain, when we think of blockchain, we're primarily thinking of crypto, right? Mm. We think of cryptocurrencies, uh, we're now thinking about NFTs, and Mm -hmm. we are thinking about NFTs and art and so on, and sometimes that conversation gets mixed up about that about design. So I think, as as a designer, I think of the incredible opportunities that NFTs have to be able to give design creative ownership back to the leaf node of people who create designs. Mm. So let me explain that, you know, because we've got technology now that we can use to democratize the uh, process of design. So going back to design swarms, if a whole bunch of people are creating designs, they're creating IP. Mm-hmm. And now we've got technology like blockchain that let us be very thoughtful about design at that scale, right? About who are creators? How, is they, how does everybody get rewarded for their creativity? So I think when I think about technology, it's like trying to stay on top of these emerging technologies that are very powerful so that they end up serving users, end up serving humans, and they don't become runaway trains that we, mm-hmm. uh, we are deploying without being careful about what those downstream implications are and cause, you know, cause chaos because of that. So I think that's the frame that I think about these technologies about, you know, we need to, so what does that mean as a designer? I need to get reasonably expert in my understanding of what technologies are Mm -hmm. and then think about, come back to design and see what is the impact that technology can have so we can do better design design that's just, design that adds value, design that makes lives better for everybody, you know? And so that's kind of how I think about design and tech. I kind of went all over the place with that answer, but yeah, you know, in a nutshell, that's how I think about it. Yeah. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Surya, for joining me today. It was wonderful having you on. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you for (laughs) this. I love this conversation. Okay, and I did as well. And thank you to everyone out there who's watching. Um, To follow along and hear the most recent releases, head to substantial.com backslash optimistic design. And we hope that you'll join us again next month as we continue to take a future-focused look at design, ethical innovation, and technology. I'm Oma Lam, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.